So this morning, if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, now to really confuse you, we're actually in Romans. But open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're in Romans in those verses 6, 7, and 8 where Paul says that God has given to everyone in the body some manifestation of the Spirit, some anointing of the Spirit to serve each other in the body. I haven't done any teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit for probably 12 or 15 years that I can recall. So I thought, well, this is time to, you know, kind of reach out and remind everyone of what the spiritual gifts are. And so that has taken us all over the letters of the New Testament, wherever spiritual gifts are mentioned, to talk about the 17 gifts of the Spirit that are named as such in the Bible. Now, if you have this page that says Gifts of the Holy Spirit Part 1 and Part 2, a couple of weeks ago we talked about the the, um, gift of service and of teaching and exhortation and giving and leadership and mercy and helps and administration. And almost everyone, as I said, relates to those. You know what those are, you understand them, sort of, because many people don't see the supernatural Qualities. In fact, some people want to separate these gifts from the other gifts they call the sign gifts. Well, the fact of the matter is, all of these gifts are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And all of them are supernaturally endowed and empowered. And all of them are the work of God. And they should all demonstrate the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Even though, perhaps, teaching and administration and leadership appear to be more natural in what we're used to uh, than some of the others. And last week we talked about word of wisdom and word of knowledge, which is on the back side of this page. And uh, just so you know the scripture reference, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith, by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. Now, this morning, Lord willing, I want to cover the remaining seven gifts that are listed here on this page. Uh, Faith, healing, effecting miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. I shared with the 8 o'clock group, and I I share it with you. Um, When God called me to preach, I shared with you my fear of speaking in public. But there was more to that also because um, my personality is I'm, I'm kind of a peacemaker. And I just absolutely hate conflict. I don't do conflict well. I avoid it like the plague. Uh, I try my best to stay out of it. And whenever I do get into conflict, sometimes I don't think I handle it very well. And it's interesting that God called me from the call of Jeremiah because... <laughs> In that call to Jeremiah, who was a young man at the time as I was, God says to him, Do not be dismayed at their faces, but you shall speak to them all that I command you. 
And um, I don't particularly like preaching controversial things. <laughs> I don't like stirring up potential trouble. And uh, I have to say that for the first time in many years, preaching this series of sermons has given me a little bit of anxiety, only because I know we're in, we're in a church which, by definition, majors on the majors and allows latitude on the other issues. And we have people in our church who are cessationists. That means they don't believe any of this stuff happens today. They're dispensational cessationists. It all ended with the writing of Revelation. We have people in our church who are Pentecostal or Neo-Pentecostal and believe it all ought to happen a lot more than it does. And we have people all over the middle of it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of been challenging because... Um, I don't want to create confusion or division. But uh, nonetheless, uh, here's the scripture. And that, by the way, is why I preach expositorily. And when we get to Romans chapter 12 and we talk about spiritual gifts, Paul Martin has to deal with it. I don't pick and choose the topics I like, but I follow the scripture. And it disciplines me to present to you the message of the Word of God the way it occurs in scripture and with that frequency. And so here we are in Romans, in the gifts of the Spirit. Here we are in Corinthians, expanding that a little bit. And here I am this morning talking about all kinds of controversial stuff. Oh well, God give us wisdom and insight into that. You know, some of the gifts of the Spirit are similar to the kinds of things that everyone should have. For example, there's a gift of giving. But does that mean that only the people who have the spiritual gift should, should give? Don't you wish? <laughs> no. Everyone in the church is supposed to be a giver. Everyone is supposed to be contributing to the needs of the poor, the work of the ministry, the, 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 the mission and ministry of the church. Everyone is supposed to give. Some people, however are particularly anointed and gifted with a capacity above and beyond the usual. And so they have a gift of giving beyond the normal uh, expectations in the, in the Christian life. And the next one that we come to is the gift of faith, and it's just kind of like that. Who here can be this morning pleasing to God without faith? Answer, no one. Because the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said, everyone who comes to God must believe that he is, that is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So every single Christian is expected to have faith. In fact, Jesus said, if you have faith, the size of the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. His point was it doesn't take a lot of faith with God to get things accomplished, but it does take faith. And based on what Jesus said to his disciples, I think most of us need a microscope to see our faith. Um, grain of a mustard seed, I understand, is about the smallest thing you can see with the naked eye, but uh, some of us haven't seen any mountains move lately, so... Our faith must be very small. But at any rate, um, Jesus is saying everyone 
who comes to God must have faith. So what does it mean if you have the gift of faith? How many of you have ever read the stories biography of George Mueller? Can I see your hand? Read George Mueller? Really? Well, the rest of you need to go out and get his book. You need to read that. Oh my goodness. You need to, there's some in the library. Okay. You have a run on the library after service. You need to read George Mueller from the 19th century. George Mueller started an orphanage for the express purpose of proving that God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. For the purpose of proving that God was alive and well and still at work in the church. And here's, here's the policy he adopted. Now, he freely said, this isn't the, a normative thing for every single ministry, but he said, I am going to maintain an orphanage of homeless children, and I am going to care for them, house them, clothe them, feed them, and educate them, and I am never once, under any circumstances, going to mention our needs publicly. I'll never put out a prayer request. I'll never send out a letter. I'll never put it in the paper. I will never announce it in the church. I will never tell anyone what our needs are, except God alone. I'm going to pray to God and trust Him to meet our needs so that you will know, you the church, will know that there's a God in heaven who does the impossible. And so George Mueller started an orphanage with that philosophy in mind. And amazing things happened. And the story of, of George Mueller's life is what happened at the orphanage in response to prayer. In those days, for example, um, you know, they still delivered milk. You were on the milk route and they uh, milked the cows in the morning by hand. And then they put it on a horse-drawn cart, a, a kind of a horse-drawn tr- truck, And they drove it from house to house and delivered the milk. And one morning they were, uh, they got up for breakfast at the orphanage and the people preparing the food said, we have no milk anywhere in the orphanage. We have no no milk at all. And um, so they sat down to a dry breakfast and began to pray and ask God to meet their needs for that day. And about that time there came a knock on the door. And they went to the door, and it was the milkman. And he said, my uh, milk truck has broken down outside, and I'm not able to get it repaired in time to deliver the milk while it's fresh, and it's going to go bad. Could you use some milk here at the orphanage? And they had all the milk that they could use. Over George Mueller's lifetime, he also made another personal commitment. He, He lived in the accommodations that were provided by the orphanage, And the people that were kind of overseeing the work of ministry there made sure that his personal needs were taken care of. He made this commitment. God, if you ever give me any money, I will not keep one penny of it. That is personally. I will not keep one penny. Every dime I ever receive, I will invest in your kingdom. Over his lifetime, we're talking more than a hundred years ago, over his lifetime, several million dollars passed through his hands not one cent of which he ever spent on himself. But he looked to God to provide needs of missionaries and and ministries and things way beyond the orphanage. And God did amazing things through him. Gift of faith. Another thought that came to mind as I was thinking about this gift was um, 
Dr. Forrest. Dr. Forrest was the fellow who started Decoa Falls College where Rowena and I attended school in northeast Georgia. And God had given him a vision for a college that would train pastors and missionaries for work of ministry. And he was praying over a place to locate uh, this particular college. He was pastoring the Presbyterian church there in uh, Tacoa Falls, or in Tacoa. And um, Old Haddock Inn on the property of, of uh, the Tacoa Creek or Tacoa River became available. Old Haddock Inn was a multi-story building that was a resort, and there was a, about 1,100 acres associated with it including a 186-foot-tall waterfall right on the creek near Haddock Inn, and uh, that became available. And he became aware of it, and I forget how many thousands of dollars it was, but it was, uh, in the day, 1911, it was a pretty good chunk of change. And so Dr. Forrest invited the banker uh, of the town to go out and visit the property with him. And they were looking over the property, and Dr. Forrest was explaining his vision and his passion for this college. And they were standing, they had taken a walk down the stream, and they were standing in the pathway beside the stream, looking at this 186-foot waterfall there. And Dr. Forrest said, I believe God wants us to build our college here at Haddock Inn. I believe that he wants your bank to finance the purchase. And I'm going to give you a down payment here on the spot to take care of this. And we will trust God to provide the rest of the money. And he reached in his pocket and pulled out a $10 bill and handed it to the banker. Now, the first proof that God is in something like that is the banker said, okay. <laughs> you know, he accepted the $10 as earnest money in the purchase of the 1,100 acres in the north woods of North Georgia, in the woods of North Georgia, and, and accepted that as a purchase for Haddock Inn, and God provided, and God met the need. And over the last uh, 100 years, the Call Falls College has graduated thousands of pastors and missionaries who serve him all over the world, in churches and mission fields and ministries and endeavors throughout the kingdom of God. Today, they have over a thousand, maybe pushing 2,000 students. They have more than 25 majors in the college that are all in some way point toward ministry or education. And that vision that Dr. Forrest had back in 1911 is more than reality on this large campus sprawling over that area today as a school that exists for the glory of God. The gift of faith. Not everyone can pull $10 out of their pocket and see what God has promised and offered as down payment and trust God to meet the other however many tens of thousands because God has spoken to their heart and they believe it. Do you have that gift this morning? Do you have that ability to believe God for unusual, super, extra, incredible things? How is it that that gift is used in the body of Christ? How do you minister to one another if you have the gift of faith? Well, sometimes a brother or sister may be in trouble, may be in need, may have some special need in their life. And God has given you a, a sense of what He wants to do to believe for them that He is going to do a mighty thing in their situation, and you can encourage them. 
I have prayed for you, sister. I prayed for you, brother. God is going to answer this prayer in your life. I believe that. I want to encourage you with that. Maybe you need to encourage the body. Maybe as we're praying over decisions we're making in the church, God has given you a, a vision for what He wants to do, and you have reached out and embraced it by faith, and you can encourage the whole church. Listen, God has affirmed to my heart that this is what He wants to do, and we can believe that. Now, I'm not talking about leading a pep rally. I'm not talking about whipping up something in your emotions to say, well, let's trust God. Who wants to trust God? Let's have a cheer. Trust God. Trust God. You know, that kind of... I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that know in their heart what God wants to do and believe it with all their mind, all their soul, and can say infectiously to other people, God is going to answer our prayers. God is going to meet us. We need people in the body with the gift of faith. How about the gift of healing? You know, the Christian Missionary Alliance has a rich tradition in healing because Dr. Simpson had this gift. And everywhere he went, as he prayed for people, people were healed. Dr. Simpson never, ever claimed to be a faith healer. And in fact, one of the things, and, and for years I used to read the papers, because everyone who wants to be a pastor or a missionary in the Christian Missionary Alliance has to write seven position papers that are read over their two-year uh, ordination period. And one of those papers they have to write is, is on the gift of healing, Jesus, our healer. And uh, for years, I read the healing papers. And, um, you know, I would read what different people had to say about them. And one of the things I would do on the, uh, in the interviews is question people about what their understanding of divine healing was. Because we do not believe in faith healing. Faith healing is healing that is dependent on your faith. And you've heard people say that if you just had enough faith, God would heal you. If you just believed more, God would heal you. We've had tragic stories come out of people who went off their insulin or took their children off insulin who were diabetic because they were told, you must believe God and put away all these other things. And somebody dies because of that. We don't teach faith healing. We teach divine healing. There's a difference. Because in divine healing, God is the healer, not my faith. It's not my faith that releases the healing. It's God who does the healing. It's Jesus who is my healer. And we come to Him and we trust Him, as the Scripture says, and believe Him to do healing works in our lives. And some people are anointed by the Holy Spirit with the gift of healing, such that when they pray for people, they are healed. God does a miraculous work in their body and in their life. Now, you don't have to extrapolate this very far to understand some of the pros and cons of this issue. Uh, if Jesus tarries, how many of you in this room are going to die? Okay, uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you're not paying attention. <laughs> because everybody in this room, if Jesus tarries, is going to die one day. It's going to happen. And, and as one person said, you're never going to get healed of your last sickness. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Unless you die in your sleep perfectly healthy when you went to bed, everyone is eventually going to die. We're going to get sick. These kinds of things are going to come. The Apostle Paul 
was sick with with an infirmity that he never got free of. And this apostle who prayed for people and they were healed instantly could not get Epaphras to be healed instantly when he visited him in Philippi because, uh, or when he visited him in jail in Rome from Philippi because he said, Epaphras, I thought he was going to die. I was just in distress over this man. I prayed for him constantly and I thought he was going to die. And God has been gracious to him. You know, how many of us have been in that situation for a loved one? We just, we thought they were going to die. And all the praying we would do. But, God nonetheless heals. And there's, while there's mystery to it, He does step into our lives and bring healing. And some people He equips and anoints with the capacity that as they pray for people, they are healed. I don't mean hokey weird stuff. I mean like on the spot, cancers disappear, heart attacks, hearts are healed, broken bones are mended, diabetes goes away, high blood pressure becomes normal, God heals people. Every year at the Christian Missionary Alliance Annual Council, when we uh, come together, well, it's every two years now, but when we come together as a national family and all the missionaries that are home, uh, on home uh, during their home time, we have a communion service and with it we have a healing service. And we all always, after sharing the Lord's table together, someone brings a message on healing and one or two other people who have been touched by God in dramatic ways give testimonies. And there's always incredible testimonies. But one of them that has stuck with me ever since I heard it, a physician, I believe he was an internist, was a, a member of a, a Christian Missionary Alliance congregation, part of a, a le- the leadership group in his church, and a relatively young man, I believe he was in his 40s, mid to late 40s, when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer that had advanced already. And they had done everything that they could for him over the year or two that he had been ill. And finally, the cancer was getting the best of him. And he had asked the church to pray for him. And uh, yet, on this particular Saturday, um, he had asked once again that the elders come to his home. Because his doctors had said to him, there is nothing more we can do for you. The disease is way advanced. You probably only have a few weeks to live. Um, and you need to contact hospice, go home, and, and just uh, enjoy what time you have left as best you can. The cancer had broken way out of the prostate region, was throughout his lower abdomen. It was into his bones. It had affected other organs. It was tearing apart his bone structure. He was not able to walk by this time. And he was lying on the sofa this Saturday morning when the elders arrived at his home to pray for him once again. And they came in and they gathered around the sofa there and they began to pray over him, anointing him with oil and asking the divine healer to have mercy on their friend. He said, during the prayer, I felt as though some some warmth had come over my body. I felt as though God were actually doing a, a work in my life even as they were praying. He said, by the time they had all had a round of prayer, I was feeling so strengthened that I wanted to walk with them to the front door and, and see them off. And he said, I did that. And, and uh, he was kind of comically embarrassed as he was sharing this at council, but he said, 
by early afternoon, I felt so good. He says, I hate to tell you this, but I just had this strange urge that I wanted to go play nine holes of golf, which I did. And he said, I went to church the next morning and testified to the grace of God in healing. And then he went back to his doctors and asked them to re-examine. And here he stood at the Christian Missionary Alliance Council a year or two later. There was not a trace of cancer in his body. All the damage that had been done had been completely healed within a 24-hour time span. He was completely whole, totally well, unscathed and was standing in front of several thousand people testifying to the grace of God in his life, back working in an active medical practice. God heals. God heals. He heals today. He heals people. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, God sometimes anoints individuals who have a ministry, particularly in praying for other people to be healed. And would to God that if you have that gift, that you would make it known, (laughs) that you would join us in the elders when we pray for people. We have often wondered, several people have said, here we are on this corner. There's a hospital there. Every ambulance in McHenry County comes by this building one way or another. They all come by here going to the hospital. Um, There's a senior center down the street. We live in the middle of an area where healing is needed. All behind us are medical buildings. Would that God would make this a healing place. That he would demonstrate his power and his glory in healing. Effecting of miracles is kind of like healing, except it's not limited to the body. And it's not limited to other things. It's whenever something needs to be done that just isn't going to get done in the normal way, God can do it. God can do amazing things. It's like Paul, when he reached his hand uh, to put a log onto the fire and a snake, a poisonous snake, bit him on that island there as they were shipwrecked. And they said, aha, <laughs> he really was the culprit. He, the sea didn't get him, he made it to shore, but now the gods are going to kill him with a snake. And he just shook the thing off and went on about his business. And after a while, they kind of looked and said, whoa, maybe we better listen to this man. Something's going on here that's unusual. And God had done a miracle in their midst. You remember Philip when he was uh, speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch on his way back to, to Ethiopia. And Philip was somewhere else. He was in the Samaritan regions preaching the gospel. And all of a sudden he found himself transported in the spirit. Headed down on a pathway to Egypt miles from where he had started out. Just in the blink of an eye. How did that happen? I remember reading Mal Terry's book, Like a Mighty Wind, on the Indonesian revival in the 1970s. And they testified, and a reporter looked into this to verify as best he could from eyewitnesses the reality of these events. And one of the things that they talked about was uh, in uh, Indonesia, in certain times of the year, the monsoon season is kind of like the rain we've had in the last several days. And they would have to trek across narrow paths of mud through forests that sometimes would take them uh, one or two whole days to get to a village. And they would have bands of witnessing teams and preaching teams going out to these remote villages. And Mel Terry said on more than one occasion, they would start out in the morning knowing they had a one or uh, two day walk ahead of them 
And by lunchtime, they would be walking into the village. And they didn't know how they got there. But they got there in like, you know, one-tenth the time that it would normally take. And he said one time they were walking through the mountains and it was just raining hard. It was just like pouring down. And, and uh, you know, if you've been slogging through mud or whatever in Indonesia, you listen to some of the missionaries talk about that where it's almost up to your knees and the rain... And Mel said that the group that was traveling on the witnessing team on that particular occasion, it rained in a circle around them, but never on them. And the path they walked on was dry, even though it was muddy in front and behind. Where they walked, it was always dry. In times of revival, God does great things. He does amazing things. Listen, our God holds this universe together. By the word of his power. And he can tweak it whenever he wants. He has no trouble just adjusting the molecules to accomplish his purposes. And the person who has the gift of working miracles is a person who, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, sees these amazing things happen. Now, let me be very quick here to say something. I've talked about faith, I've talked about healing, I've talked about miracles and people who are anointed. But I believe with all my heart that if you have this gift, you can't just go and do as you want to do. Oh, I think I'll go heal this person. Oh, I think I'll, uh, hmm, I think I'll turn the water into wine in the pastor's cup and see if he gets a charge out of that. You know, I think I'll walk on some water this afternoon. It's not that kind of a thing. The Holy Spirit has got to be in the process prompting two ingredients. The will of God and His purposes and your cooperation and yieldedness to His work. Those things have to go together. You can have the gift. You can refuse to do what God is prompting you to do, but you cannot do what He's not prompting you to do. It's not within your domain to do that. And uh, so you have to be open to the, to the voice and the leading of the Holy Spirit as he does that. I believe when Peter and John were on the temple that day in the book of Acts, on their way to the temple, and there's the lame man on the steps of the temple who's been lame from birth, and he's begging and asking for a handout. And they say to him, I don't have any silver or gold, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. This is not written in the Bible, but I have seen enough of this stuff go on in my life that I believe this is what happened. Peter and John are walking along the street, and here's this lame guy. It's not the first time they've ever seen him. He's been there for 30-something years. He is not a stranger to the temple steps. But as they're walking along this day, the Holy Spirit prompts Peter and John, and Peter hears this in his heart. I want to heal this man today. Speak to him in my name. And as he approaches him and the man reaches out, Peter, for the first time, answers him and says, I don't have silver or gold, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Because he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to minister to that man in that moment, in that occasion. You must be led of the Spirit in the exercise of these gifts. You can't just do them whenever you want to. 
Now, what about the gift? Is everybody with me so far? Have I weirded you all out by now? Okay. All right, now what about the gift of prophecy? Um, I testified last week, told you a little bit about my story. I was raised a Southern Baptist. I didn't know if there was a Holy Spirit in those days. Now, the Baptists have come a long way, so I'm not dissing any group. But I grew up in a church that just never talked about the Holy Spirit, and, and kind of like when I began to investigate the Holy Spirit, it's like I'd never heard of Him before. And so I went from the Baptist to the, the charismatic movement, just like overnight, and I'm, now I'm a, a flaming neo-Pentecostal, fully into the charismatic movement, hook, line, and sinker, because if God's doing anything out there, I want to be a part of it. So, just so you understand my background, those of you that weren't here last week, and then I kind of got back to the middle of the ground. You know, seldom it is, are the extremes right. <laughs> Usually the truth lies somewhere in the middle, and I finally came back around to that, which is why I'm in the Christian Missionary Alliance today. But in the process of that, I was in many, many, many meetings where the supposed gift of prophecy was being used. And typically what would happen is, Someone would stand up in a meeting, and, and, and this was almost invariably the case. They'd raise their right hand. I never did a survey to see if lefties raised their left hand. About 10% of the population are left-handed. But it was usually the right hand. They would raise their hand, and they would say something like this, Thus saith the Lord to thee, my brothers, my sisters. And then they would come out with this prophecy. Like the Holy Spirit still spoke in King James Elizabethan English. Thus saith the Lord to thee. It's like, when did you last hear that in the vernacular? You know, that was like 400 years ago. But that's how it would start out. And they would give this, usually a message about the future. When I was starting a church in Franklin, Tennessee, we had a fellow... We were meeting in a sales auditorium of, of the Southwestern Company owned by Times Mirror Corporation, a summer book sales kind of place. We were meeting in their sales auditorium on Sundays. And uh, in the room, there were, you could flip up a desk if you wanted to. And, and this guy calls me up and he says, I saw or heard your church on the radio or saw it in the paper. And uh, God showed me a church that was meeting in a sales auditorium with, uh, with desks. And... I think that's your church, and I'm supposed to come to it. And I said, well, we do meet in a sales auditorium, and some of the chairs turn into desks. Well, that's where I'm supposed to be. Okay. <clears throat> so he comes, and then uh, it happened like within the first Sunday or two that he was there. And every Sunday, I could count on it as I was giving the benediction, or maybe at the offering time, he would step out into the aisle, because we were all standing at that time usually. He would step out in the aisle, raise his hand, not to get permission to do anything, but to start out, Thus saith the Lord to thee, my children. And he would give a prophecy. Now, I didn't think this guy was genuine. In fact, there was stuff going on in me. I'll get to that in a minute in discerning the spirits. But there was stuff going on in me that says, This guy has got a demon who was sent here to confuse the church and to stir up trouble. And so after he'd done that a couple of weeks, I called him aside and I said, Look, brother, if you have a prophetic message, first of all, I don't know that you need to go through all the drama. 
Okay, just, just simply raise your hand, get permission, and just tell us what's on your heart. And we can handle it either way, but it's better if you don't put the embellishment around it. And I said, secondly, I'm not sure that you've got this from the Spirit of God. Now, he did know stuff that I don't know how he knew without being told by some spirit, but I don't know that it was the Holy Spirit. And so I tried to, to rein him in a bit. And, and like I said, do you remember me telling you a few minutes ago, I hate conflict? So I tried to be as gentle as I could. Well, he didn't get the message. In fact, he began to tell people that I was demonized. Your pastor has a demon. He doesn't believe in these spiritual gifts. And, you know, and we've got to pray for him. It was all kind of insidious. But all of a sudden, I had people beginning to wonder about, you know, my spiritual knowledge and understanding. And, and this guy's running around sowing discord. And... I, I, and then the next thing I know, he's casting demons out of people. <laughs> oh, man. So I'm trying to get a hold on this guy, and he's just not paying attention. And I said, Lord, you know, what are we going to do about this? And uh, I kind of sensed, well, it's going to run its course. Just give it time. Well, a month or so later, he went to a funeral. And this is kind of where he cooked his goose. Because he went to a funeral... And the body, the embalmed body, is in the casket. And he prophesies over the body and commands it to come out of the casket and rise up and walk. And nothing happens. And he does it again and nothing happens. And, and the, the fact that he was sincere in what he was doing is kind of betrayed by the fact that it just tore him up. He just couldn't believe that nothing happened. Because he suddenly ran into the reality that he was sincerely wrong and had a wrong spirit. And the casket episode was kind of the last straw. And the last I ever heard of him, someone saw him hitchhiking down toward Chattanooga. And I've never heard about him since. Not too many years ago, we had someone show up in our area from the Kansas City School of the Prophets. And uh, some of you may have gone to some meetings at that time. He never came to the church because he wanted permission to come and, and speak to the church. He wanted my permission, and I, and I am grateful to him for that. But I never gave it because I never had a witness in my spirit that he was of God. And, uh, and I went to one of the meetings one time, and he prophesied over me, and I'm still not in Boston doing anything great. But, uh, you know, you, you never know. But... Um, the Kansas City School of Prophets is a place where they, they learn prophecy and supernatural things in kind of unusual ways. And what they do is, among other things, uh, they will give people challenges to kind of test out their supernatural sensitivity to being able to, to get messages from God. And so they'll send them to another city and they'll say, look, we want you to go to some other city and we want you to meet up with someone. They'll be waiting for you, but they won't tell them who it is or where to find them. And so they're supposed to exercise their prophetic discernment and powers by going to this place and then finding this person without any directions or knowing who they're looking for. You know, the scary thing is some of them actually pull it off. And I want to tell you very honestly this morning, they don't need to go around to churches prophesying. They need to hang up a sign that says we read tarot cards here and palms and do seances, I've learned how to contact the spirit world. Come see what he has to say. 
Because the Holy Spirit does not inspire prophecy in that fashion. And you don't have to go through some school and, and games to figure out how to prophesy. If you have the gift of prophecy, God is going to give, it, give you the message to say without all of that rigmarole. Now, I shared this as I mentioned to you with my brother uh, who is in the Assemblies Church. And I said, you know, let's talk about prophecy. And I, I'm going to give you his definition. Because it's coming right from the heart of a, of a committed Pentecostal. Prophecy is speaking forth the message of God. Prophecy is speaking forth the message of God. That's what prophecy is. It is always speaking forth the message of God. You may be witnessing to someone about Jesus Christ and the anointing of the Holy Spirit is upon you and you are powerfully sharing the gospel message. You are prophesying to that person about Jesus Christ. You're speaking forth the message of God. There are times when my messages lean more toward teaching, like this morning, but there are other times when my messages lean more toward the prophetic. I often thought, even though people said Billy Graham was an evangelist, as I listened to him prophesy over America and the United States and the condition of the world and the, where things were going, I sensed in my heart, this man is a prophet. He is a prophet to the world and a prophet to this nation. You may, you may be teaching a Bible study. You may be leading a, a small group. And God puts a burden on your heart to share something. And you speak out what God has laid on your heart and you're prophesying. You don't have to go through some fancy prelude. You don't have to wave your hands and speak King James English. All you have to do is report what God has put on your heart. And that is prophecy. At times, it may include elements of the future. If you read the prophecy of Scripture, the prophets in the Bible, 80 to 90 percent of the time, by actual verse count, brought the message of God to the immediate circumstances of the present. But occasionally, they did cast a vision of God's purposes and plans into the future. And sometimes God does that to authenticate His gifts. But don't make any mistake about it. There are false prophets who have gone out into the world also. And John says to his audience in, in Ephesus in his first letter, 1 John, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And test the spirits of prophecy. Do you sometimes sense that God is burdening your heart with a message? You know, and if you're in the assembly, like this morning, and you feel that God has given you something that we need to hear, and it's just heavy on your heart, my encouragement to you is to, it will be much better received if you just simply kind of raise your hand and say, Pastor, I just feel like God's laid something on my heart. Can I share it? Okay, let's hear it. And then you say what's on your heart. What God has put on your heart. And we listen. And the Scripture says, let the others judge. Let them evaluate. Let the elders evaluate. And, and if we say, yes, this is the Word of the Lord to us. Praise God. I remember sitting in a prayer meeting. Some of you, do you remember those prayer meetings we had? I don't know, it's been seven or eight years ago now. 
And uh, we had like a hundred something people. By the way, that came out of a prayer meeting. And in that prayer meeting, God told us that we were to have three prayer meetings and there would be more than a hundred people in each one. And we had three prayer meetings and there was never less than about 125. Isn't that amazing? I, I was just, it was like, whoa, this is, this is really cool. And on the last night, we were praying together and uh, there was a brother here. I'll leave him unnamed, but um, there was a brother here who um, is is a doctor in town, and he was here in the prayer meeting. <laughs> it was so cool. I just loved it so much because he said, we had this time of sharing at the end. He says, you know what? He says, I feel like God's given me a message I'm supposed to share with the group. And a scripture passage. And he says, I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. And I thought, isn't that great? God picked on someone that was a total novice, you know. And, uh, and he picks on this brother, and this brother brings a message, and he, bring, he, he reads a verse of Scripture, and then he says, this is what God's put on my heart to say. And I and many others who were present in that meeting instantly sensed this is the word of the Lord to us. This is the word of the Lord to us. And um, if you want to know what it says, it's interesting how you remember those things, because I remember very clearly what he, what he said was, the Lord said, I have many things to say to you all, but you're not ready to hear them yet. And, and, and that was our last prayer meeting, and we went back to a typical prayer meeting of about 10 or 15 people. I don't know what happened after that. But, but, it, was, but it was obvious that God was saying, I, I have my eyes on you, I have my attention on you, I have things I want to say to you, but you've got to do some growing before you can receive them. You've got to move along. Okay. I sensed in my heart that that was from God. Others did too. And what was so astounding is the person who shared that had no clue what they were really doing. They just said, you know, God just put this on my heart. Okay. It makes sense. And uh, there was no real fanfare. It was just speaking that. So prophecy... Um, it may be dramatic, it may not be. It might have something of the future in it. More often, it's simply going to be addressing uh, the, the message of God to the present need. It may occur during teaching, it may occur in preaching, it may occur in witnessing, it may occur at any time that God comes on you with prophecy. Paul says, if you want to pick out a gift, he said this to the Corinthians who were kind of off base, if you want to pick out a gift that you want to have, if you're going to have to pick Corinthians, because they were all hung up on tongues. He said, if you want a gift, ask for prophecy. He said, I speak in tongues more than all of you do. But he said, in the assembly, I'd rather speak five words prophetically that everybody understands than 10,000 words in a tongue that no one understands. If you want a gift, go for prophecy, because it's bringing the message of God to the day. Discerning of spirits. What is that? Well, the first thing I want to say about discerning of spirits is this. It is not discernment. It is not discernment. Like amazing insight. You know that guy that came the other day? I think he's kind of weird. I, he may be lying to us. I just kind of sense that. It's people that have the gift of discernment. There is no spiritual gift of discernment. This is discerning of spirits. Now, we need to kind of demystify the word discernment because many people use that to talk about their intuitive sense. 
You know, I'm perceptive. I have insight. Ooh, I, I got it. You know, that's what they're talking. And that's not what we're talking about. The word discernment simply means to differentiate. It means to be able to distinguish between different items. If I had change in my pocket, which I never have in my pocket on Sunday, but I have keys. Well, I don't have change. I don't want to jingle it. But if I had change in my pocket and I pulled it out and there were seven coins and someone looked at it and said, you have three pennies, two nickels, and two dimes. That's discernment. They're able to figure out what are the pennies, what are the nickels, and what are the dimes by looking at it. That is what the word means. To be able to distinguish between different objects. Now, the next component of this gift is, it is not discernment about everything, it is discerning of spirits. The capacity by the Holy Spirit to know whether someone is speaking or acting by a demon, by the Holy Spirit, or out of their own human spirit. So discerning of spirits is the capacity to know when a thing or an event is from God or from the powers of darkness or just human, from the flesh. The Apostle Paul tells us, and I realize in speaking to, to an American audience, we have trouble with this, but go most anywhere else in the world and they will immediately know what you're talking about. You know, we, we, we have so scientificized our brains, that's a word, we were post-enlightenment, now post-modern, falling off the cliff, whatever. It's, it's strange, isn't it, that, that Americans are having more and more trouble believing in a supernatural God, but less and less difficulty believing in angels. That's just weird to me. But anyway, we're having trouble in that whole arena. But if you go most of the other places in the world, they know demons exist. They know angels exist. They know God exists. They know the devil's real. According to George Barna, many professing Christians don't believe in a personal devil. So why would they believe in demons? They don't even believe in the devil. Good grief. But he's very clearly mentioned in Scripture. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. We're fighting spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. And he names them powers, principalities, and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. The heavenlies are the atmosphere. All around us are evil demonic powers. Does that creep you out? I hope not. Because the scripture also says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Okay? But we have this battle. And so Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Put the helmet of salvation. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, the girdle of truth. Put your shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace on your feet. Take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery missiles of the evil one. And that girdle of truth that holds you with doctrinal purity, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the offensive use of the Word of God, and you're ready for battle because we're fighting spiritual powers. You need to be ready to deal with them. One who has discerning of spirits knows by the Holy Spirit when something is demonic, when it is of God, when it is of the flesh. They can distinguish between the spirits and they know. Some people even know the names of the demons. 
Other people just know whether it's of God or not. But that's discerning of spirits. And then in the last uh, five minutes I've already used up, uh, let me talk very quickly about tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Um, there's all kinds of uh, false notions. I'm not going to spend another sermon on this, so we're <laughs> bear with me, please. Um, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. What is the gift of tongues? Well, I was uh, reading an application of someone for ministry in the Christian Missionary Alliance because I, I sit on that committee of interviewing candidates. And as I was reading it, this person said he had the gift of tongues. And I meant to ask him what he meant by that, because I have a feeling he did not mean what the Bible means. Here was a, a doctoral candidate who uh, knew ten different ancient and Semitic languages and was learning more and already teaching as a uh, graduate teaching assistant. He was teaching uh, ancient languages and in one case, he was actually teaching a class that he said, I'm about two weeks ahead of the students in one of these ancient languages, you know. So, I mean, he could read the hieroglyphics and all this kind of stuff. And I think what he meant was, I have the aptitude for learning other languages. That is not the gift of tongues. The aptitude to learn languages is not the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is the aptitude to speak languages you've never learned. And to do it right now... Paul, the apostle, even implies, although he may simply be using a figure of speech like hyperbole, but Paul implies in 1 Corinthians that there may even be angelic tongues. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I'm like a clanging gong or a tinkling cymbal. But men and of angels, what does that mean? Maybe there are angelic tongues. I don't know. But what I do know is on the day of Pentecost, as the 120 were gathered in the upper room, the Holy Spirit came upon them to fill and equip them for ministry. They all began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit was enabling them. And what happened? We know they were the languages of men because everyone in Jerusalem who was there for the festival of Pentecost said, What is this? These don't look like college graduates to us. These are simple Galileans. And we're hearing them speak in our language. Parthians, Medes, Persians, Egyptians. We're Alexander. We're hearing them all speak in our language. Our heart tongue, our mother tongue. How is this happening? And God brought great conviction on the crowd and they came to faith in Christ. A little later in the book of Acts at Cornelius' household, Peter goes there. He preaches the gospel. They receive Christ. They're baptized. The Holy Spirit falls upon the group. And the scripture says they began to speak in other tongues. Why did that happen? Peter explains that back at the Council of Jerusalem. The Jews never believed God would give the gospel to the Gentiles. So if you're God and you want to prove to the Jews in their, in their racial arrogance, you know, that, that he really is going to treat Gentiles the same as them, what would you do? Wouldn't you do exactly to the Gentiles what you did to the Jews? I mean, wouldn't you leave no question? This is the very same thing that happened to us. That's what Peter said. Obviously, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Obviously, they spoke in tongues just as we did. Obviously, they had a conversion experience like we did. Obviously, God is in their midst. How can we withhold water from these people that had the very same experience? God was saying, Gentiles and Jews are just alike in my kingdom. Later on, the Apostle Paul goes to Ephesus, and there are people 
that he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that's a very interesting question. I don't have time to go into. But they said, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he begins to explain to them. They find out they're not even born again. They become born again. They, they are baptized. They are filled with the Spirit of God. And they speak in tongues. And so tongues began to be, throughout the, the New Testament period, tongues began to be the evidence that the Holy Spirit was truly uh, upon a group. It was a sign. It was a sign that the Holy Spirit was coming upon a group. And throughout church history, there has always been, in great revival times, particularly in the last 125 years, there has been an evidence that the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work when people receive the gift of tongues. But we do err when we think that only Christians speak in tongues. That's not true. Other groups speak in tongues. In Paul's day, the people who worshipped at the pagan temples used glossolalia, speaking in tongues. They used that as a means of ecstatic worship in the pagan temples. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, Don't you know that someone speaking by the Spirit of God is not going to say Jesus is accursed? There were apparently people in the Corinthian church speaking in tongues and someone said, I have the interpretation, Jesus is anathema. Where's your head? The Holy Spirit's not going to do that. And so Paul says, don't you know this? That's what happened when you were led astray to the dumb idols. Today in Salt Lake City, Utah, the Mormons speak in tongues. They are not Christians. Anybody differs with me on that, you can see me afterwards. I'll, uh, we'll talk about it. But the Mormons are not Christians. Okay, but they speak in tongues. Other groups speak in tongues. Demons speak in tongues by way of counterfeit. Tongues in and of themselves is not a proof of anything except something supernatural is going on. It requires the context and the anointing of the Spirit to determine who's behind it. And Paul says, whenever you speak in tongues in the assembly, there must be interpretation. I have had many Pentecostal friends say to me through the years, Ah, you're talking about the prophetic gift of tongues and interpretation, but I have the prayer language. And I've been in many many Pentecostal churches, charismatic meetings, where there comes a time in the service where they pray, and they all pray in tongues. Everybody's standing up praying in tongues and praising God and praying in tongues. And uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, who were doing the same thing, don't you know what's going to happen when unbelievers walk into this group? They're going to think you've gone crazy. Stop that stuff. I cannot find anywhere in my New Testament that there's a difference between a gift of tongues for the church and a prayer language for everybody. It's just, it's just not there. There's a gift of tongues, period. And if you have it, and you want to use it in the church, there must be an interpreter. If there's not an interpreter, you can't speak. How do you use tongues in the church? How do you use tongues in a Bible study? How do you use tongues in your small group? If you have the gift of tongues, and you feel that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to bring a message in tongues, just like you do with prophecy or anything else. Who's the group leader? Raise your hand. Say to the group leader, I feel like God's given me a message in tongues that I'd like to share. Is there someone here who has the gift of interpretation and God is 
telling you that there's going to be an interpretation. And Paul says, if no one fesses up to be an interpreter, then just don't speak. Because it's inappropriate to speak in a tongue unless there's interpretation in public. Let him speak to himself and to God. And that doesn't mean under your breath where everybody can hear you. Okay, I've, I've been in groups like that too. It's like as with all this murmuring is going on. And some people say, well, hey, when you, when you all pray together in English and Spanish, and we're all together and we're praying like that, we've done that sometimes, isn't that the same thing? No, it's not, because if you walk in the door and stand by anybody, you know what they're saying. I mean, you know they're speaking English or Spanish. But if there's this murmuring going on. So the, the message of the Scripture is, if there's not an interpretation, keep silent in the church. Keep silent in the Bible study. Keep silent in the prayer group. If there's not an interpretation, speak to yourself, speak to God. Because the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself in the presence of God. But if you want to edify the body, it has to be translated. And if it's translated, it equates to prophecy. The Holy Spirit is giving a message and a sign. And Paul says, if it's going to be in the assembly, it should only be two or three at the most. It should be limited to that. I will have to confess to you that I have rarely seen the gift of tongues used properly in the church. I have rarely seen it happen. I was a part of a Bible study about 34 years ago where I felt it was proper. It was appropriate. It was always interpreted. It was amazing the things God said and confirmed to our hearts through that. And it was always in order. There was nothing wild or crazy about the meeting. Everything was in order. And I felt it was clearly of the Lord. And it was an amazing thing. But God does give the gift of tongues. I'm in the Christian Missionary Alliance today because I do not believe any work in the New Testament has ended. We are in the New Testament era. We are in the days of the Holy Spirit. And as we come toward the end of the age, I believe the power of the Spirit is going to be more and more evident as the power of the world becomes more powerful. And we are living in that period of time. And so God can do anything He wants to do. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I want everything that God wants to give me. I want everything for this church that He wants to give the church. But I don't want anything that's of the devil. And I don't want any foolishness. And I want to be able to go to this book and find authentication and verification for everything we do. Because if I can't find it here, I can't trust it. If it's in the book, I can trust it. And so I, I hope you're hearing me say we have a middle road that we choose to walk. And our founder, A.B. Simpson, put it this way, and please forgive me for quoting him, not the Bible. I just think he happens to sum summarize biblical truth. Paul says in the scriptures regarding tongues, do not seek it, do not forbid it. And that's exactly where I stand. Don't seek any supernatural gift. Do you know why? Because if you're looking for a supernatural gift, my friend, you're looking for power. You're like those Jews saying, give us signs. We want signs and wonders. More bread, please. <laughs> More fish. We want signs and wonders. Seek God. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Set your eyes on Jesus Christ. Lift Him up. Yield to Him with all of your being. Love Him with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Open yourself to God and God alone. Do not seek the gift. Seek the giver. Put your attention on Jesus Christ.
and then be open to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our midst. He wants to be here, present and accounted for. He wants to work in our midst. Let us be open to his ministry. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Minister to our hearts with it. Enrich us. Lord, help us, as Paul said to the Corinthians, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. To desire the presence and ministry of your Spirit. And to be those who, like the Bereans, search the Scriptures to see if these things are true. To test the spirits, for there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. And to hold fast to all that which is true. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.